First things matter. We understand that. We talk about first dates. They matter. First things that are part of a story matter. The way you introduce your writing or your speaking matters. We know first things first. First things matter. They form the foundation for everything. They give us the subject, the topic, the focus, the framework, the trajectory of everything that will ensue. In fact, first things are definitional. They provide and establish the very immovable idea of whatever is to take place. And everyone knows this. This is why we emphasize, oh, you want to make a good first impression. Oh, you want to get off on the right foot, and it's a disaster if you get off on a bad foot. We ponder how to begin a conversation. People always pay attention to the beginning. It really matters. People are obsessed with doing things right the first time and thinking through matters of first importance. Over and over, that is the case, except in Genesis. Except in Genesis. Except with the opening chapters of the Bible. When we're talking about Genesis 1 through 11, what people do is they try to minimize this section. Well, you don't really need this part of your Bible. They try to problematize this part of the Bible. Well, it's, it's very confusing. It's very controversial. People aren't sure if it's historical. People aren't sure if it's really that important. And even though in every case, when we talk about things that come first and how they matter so much and things that begin always are of first importance and they form the foundation and they form definitions, we think, we often hear that Genesis is the exception to the rule. Is that really the case? Do you really think that God, who made man and who established the very logic that beginnings matter, that first things come first. And out of his graciousness then, chose to reveal us that very first thing, that very beginning would just have in his own logic, even though I did all of these things and all of these things are true, that yeah, what I said in Genesis 1 through 11, it really doesn't matter. It's kind of a waste of time. Do you really think, given the fact of God's own emphasis and hardwiring the nature of first things of first importance, that he would mess up the first things that he's using to introduce himself to us? Do you think he would make it confusing? Do you think he would make it controversial? Do you think he would make it useless? Of course not. Rather, here's what you have at the beginning you have the highest degree of clarity. And you have the establishment here in this beginning. This first is the first of all firsts. This definition that are provided in these opening chapters of Genesis are the definition of all definitions. This foundation is the foundation of all foundations. These chapters that we're about to cover, they matter. They are at the bedrock of all foundations. And we don't destroy our uproot foundations. We get deep into them. And that is the goal for this evening. And this isn't just going to be a time of apologetics where we defend a certain interpretation of these chapters. This is about devotion in life. 
and understanding this is God's introduction of himself to us. This is us understanding who our God is and what he is all about and all of his grace and glory. So with that in mind, there are three headings, three headings that I want to present that really Moses has us to understand from Genesis 1 through 11. It's three activities of God to introduce himself, creation, commission, and constraint. Creation, commission, and constraint. So let's talk about those three things now. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And as you turn there, which should be pretty short, we need to talk about something, of course, before we jump into the text, which is how do we read these chapters? Should they be historical or should they be something else? And as I have commented elsewhere, just like when we deal and think through the issue of the claims of Christ, that he could be a liar, he could be a lunatic, he could be a lord, In the same way, Genesis 1 through 3, and really Genesis 1 through 11, can be one of three categories. It could be miscommunication, where parts of Genesis 1 through 11 could be historical, but other parts may not be. It could be myth, where the whole thing was never intended to be historical at all. It's just kind of like a parable. And then you could also have myth-busting, where everything was meant to be historical, and it busts the myth. Now, how do we sort through these three different options? Well, we can easily refute the notion that Genesis 1 through 11 or even Genesis 1 through 3 is miscommunication. People often argue that there might be ambiguities in wording like a day or in perhaps some gaps that may have happened in the opening verses of Genesis 1, 1 through 3. But might I point out that there is no variability or ambiguity in the language of day. Look at Genesis 1, 5. There was evening, there was morning, and notice it doesn't just say in the text, first day, it says one day. First day is giving an order. One day tells you what counts as a day. God here has defined what a day is. It is evening and it is morning. There is no confusion here. There is no ambiguity. And the point is not just by saying one day that God gave us the ammunition to defeat the day-age theory. That's not the point at all. Here's the point. God is so sovereign, he defines time. He defines everything, including time itself. That's the idea. There's no miscommunication. You could argue, well, what about miscommunication? Maybe there's a gap between Genesis 1, 1, and 2, or 1, 2, and 3. And the answer to that is no. If you actually look up all 1,053 instances of the Hebrew construction that is found here, what you'll find out is in every single one of them, there is no gap. So therefore here, there is no gap just not grammatically sustainable. The language is crisp and clear. There's no miscommunication. So maybe, maybe some people think, well, it's not that there was miscommunication. It's myth. It was intended to be a parable. We don't read parables as if they were historical. Maybe Genesis 1 through 11 is that it teaches wonderful spiritual lessons, but it's just not history. It just didn't happen like that. Well, let's talk about that for a little bit. People argue that Genesis 1 through 11, it has a lot of parallels with ancient Near Eastern myths. That's why you would read Genesis in the same way. And they point out things like this. 
Well, in ancient Near Eastern myths, they split the sky and the sea. Don't you have that in Genesis 1? And you say, yeah, it sounds pretty much the same thing. Maybe it's a myth. Well, when they make these kind of assertions, they kind of filter it. They kind of interpret it. They kind of translate it for you. Here's what the ancient Near Eastern myth actually says. It says this, that one God took his wife, split her in half, and put half her body in the sky and half her body down below. And you say, wait, what's that supposed to be? That's supposed to just read like God made an expanse in heaven. The same thing. And you say, that doesn't sound like the same thing at all. Yeah, that's my point. What you have read is filtered. What you have read is translated. What you have read and trying to make these comparisons is interpreted. When people hear what is going on in Genesis and they compare it with the ancient Near East, they're not saying these are similar. They're going to say this is different. In fact, scholars, when they read Genesis 1, this is what they say about Genesis 1. They say it's demythologized because all the elements of Genesis 1, they're just stuff. In ancient Near Eastern myth, the deep is a goddess. The the sea monsters are creatures, supernatural creatures. And there's warfare and there's evil that is pervading all of their so-called creation narratives. You know what Genesis 1 has? The sky is what? A sky. The water is what? Water. The land is what? Land. The animals are animals. There's no mythology whatsoever doesn't exist whatsoever. And so even scholars who read Genesis 1, they say it's demythologized. And if they're saying it's demythologized, why would we ever call it a myth? It doesn't make a lot of sense. And so what you have is, well, this isn't miscommunication where parts are not historical. This isn't myth where the whole is not historical. So the only thing that's left is the way God intended us to read it is this, that it is historical, that all of it is historical. It's myth-busting, and this factors in and fits with the paradigm of history, the paradigm of what God has given to us. In 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talks about the resurrection, does he say, well, if you don't believe in a historical resurrection, it's okay, because we got the theology of the resurrection. No, he says, if you don't believe that Jesus actually raised from the dead, we are to be the pitied of all men. Why? Because you need the history to have the theology. Likewise, in Romans chapter five, does Paul say, well, how do we know that God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But if you don't believe he actually died, it's really okay because we just know that somehow God has a warm, fuzzy feeling toward us. No, that is not the logic whatsoever. In 2 Peter chapter 3, does Peter say, how do you know that there will be a judgment to come? He says, well, because there was a flood before. But if you don't believe that there was a flood before, it's okay. Just believe that there will be a judgment to come. No, always the answer is history undergirds theology, and the reality of theology is the reality of history. That's how the Bible works. It's no different with the opening chapters of the Bible. You could put it simply this way. When does the Bible start becoming history? You say, well, maybe it's not Genesis 1 through 3. Okay, Genesis 4, 1. Adam knows his wife. How did you get Adam? 
Where'd he come from? How'd he become historical all of a sudden when he wasn't historical for the first three chapters? Okay, okay, well, Adam's not historical. Okay, so his kids, are they historical? How can an unhistorical person have historical kids? How does that work? And then he say, well, okay, it starts becoming real with Abraham. Well, who are Abraham's parents? Well, Tara, and who's his parents, 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 parents? Noah, and who's his parents, 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 parents? Adam. So how do you get Abraham to be real? Well, we don't need Abraham to be real. That's what sometimes scholars say. But you do know that Abraham eventually becomes in the line of Israel, which becomes father of the line of Judah, which becomes father of the line of Jesus. So when do you start to actually read the history? One scholar one time said this, that's the beauty of the New Testament. The myth becomes reality. What does that even mean? You know, this is like chat GTP talking. In any case, we have a pattern in scripture. You need the history to have theology. You need the history to have reality. And that's how real the Bible and its message is. The Bible doesn't just give you theoretical ideas. The Bible gives you the truth. What is the facts on the ground? the definition, the reality. And what is that definition? Let's put it in sum. The definition is about God. God. That he is God. Transcendent above all in the beginning. God is before any beginning. He is eternal. He is the one who defines time. He is the one who is before all things and therefore superior to all things and the cause of all things. He is the one who is sovereign over it all. And furthermore, note this, in the beginning, Genesis 1.1 says, God what? Created. This is a marvelous and spectacular reality. You need to know this. In the Bible, the wording is strict. The word for create in its specific form is only used with God, no one else. Man makes, God alone creates. It reminds me of the old joke where a scientist challenged God. He said, the scientist that is, oh, I can make man. I can, I can make man just as well as you can. And so God said, okay, let's, let's have a contest. Let's see how this works. And so this scientist starts to clump the dirt together and starts to build up man. And God looks at the scientist and says, get your own dirt. The point is this, man can only make, God alone creates. And there is an infinite distinction there. God is the only one who calls something out of nothing. God is the only one who has ultimate causation and ultimate final definitive sovereignty. God is the only one who creates. You and I, all we do is manipulate and make what he has ordained. That's it. God is not an elevated human being. He is in a category altogether himself, absolutely transcendent above anything of creation because he is not a part of creation. He is not created. He is the creator. That's how this works. And furthermore, what we learn about God definitionally is that he is triune. 
we have the Father in verse 1. And in verse 2, you have the Spirit. And how does God create specifically verse 3? He uses his word. And we remember, even throughout the Old Testament, but even most culminatively into the New Testament, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What you have right here is Father, Spirit, and Son all in one passage. He is triune. That's very, for the very reason why man... When in his creation of man, what does our God say? Let us make man in our image. Already, you know, God is one, but at the same time, God is multiple persons from the very beginning. And God not only is transcendent, God not only is triune, God is unstoppable and orderly in what he makes. Notice verse three, we see this pattern. God said, let there be light. And there was what? Light. It's that easy. It's that obvious. The darkness didn't say back to God when God declared this, well, I don't like light. I like having the monopoly on everything right now. No, there's no war. There's no battle in the ancient Near East. There was always a battle to create everything, but that's not what's going on here. God declares it, it happens. That's the nature of his sovereignty. It defines reality. It defines reality. And there is order. God distinguishes light from darkness. And there is ordering of time, verse five. And God is unstoppable. His power is mighty. Next day, he creates a division between the sky and the water, the sky and the sea, so to speak. He forms this firmament, this expanse between the two. That's an act of divisional power. And there's ordering and organization in that. And day three, he causes the water to separate from the dry land. Again, by the word of his mouth, this is his unstoppable power as he organizes and orders things and makes sure that things are distinct. And even the plants on the ground are distinguished because they reproduce after their own kind. This is God's wisdom and his order all replicated and implemented in creation. And it's not just on days one through three, it's on days four through six. In day four, it says this, it's fascinating. It says that God put in the sky, he put in the lights and the lesser lights. You say, why does it use that term? We often say, oh, he created the sun, moon, and stars. True, but the Bible here, Moses, does not say it that way. Why? Because God consistently throughout Genesis names things. He names light and darkness. He names day and night. He names land and sea. He acknowledges what they are. But you see, back in those days, people worshiped the sun, moon, and stars. People feared the sun, moon, and stars. We remember Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? And in that same passage, it says this, the sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. People feared the sky. And what does God say? I didn't even give it a name because the sun, moon, and stars have no power. I, God, have all the power. There is a constant declaration that God has. He has no rival. He is unstoppable. And his order is the order of all creation. Day five, even with the creatures of the sea, if you look at verse 21 of chapter one, it says this, God created the sea monsters. What Israel or what the ancient Near East thought were supernatural monsters, the mascot of evil, 
God says, those are just sea monsters. They're nothing. I made them. It's not a big deal. God is absolutely sovereign. He is sovereign over every place and all that fills it. He is sovereign over everything in the sea and in the sky and day six on the land. He is sovereign over man, even the fact that man has dominion and is commanded to have dominion over the earth. That is only because he is made in the image of God. He is to point back to God. Everything is about God. And so God is great and everything is set apart for God. That's why the Sabbath exists. Everything is holy unto the Lord. And it's a reminder of this. There is no division between the sacred and the secular. Sometimes we think, oh, spiritual activities are going to church and praying and the like. Those are spiritual activities. Those must be spiritual activities. But here's what you also have to remember. Here's what you also have to remember. God wanted everything that has been created to be about him, to be holy unto him. Everything we do should be worship. That has always been the design. That has always been the decree because our God is great. He's not just an elevated man. He's not just a little bit better than us. He is beyond the boundaries of which we can conceive. He is beyond the limitations that we could ever fathom. He transcends all things. He is creator, we are not. But he's not just great, he's good. Throughout Genesis 1, we know that the text says over and over, day one, good. Day three, good. Four, five, six, very good. And let's just get a snapshot into the goodness of God. And that's where you go into Genesis 2. Genesis 2 is kind of a zoomed-in view of Genesis 1, particularly day 6 of Genesis 1. And in Genesis 2, you have something really interesting starting in verse 4 and 5. It talks about the shrubs of the field. And and before there were any grass of the field, before any of that sprouted, Yahweh God didn't allow it to rain upon the earth. Why? Why? Well, because there was no man to till the ground. You say, what's the logic of this? Well, you have to understand what the logic is now. In our modern culture, we're very concerned with the environment. In fact, we even have people who are called tree huggers. I was one time traveling through Europe, and on my travels on the way home, somebody in Amsterdam airport stopped me and was making conversation and said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from California. They said, where in California? I said, in Los Angeles? He goes, where in Los Angeles? I said, you've never heard of this place. It's, it's Santa Clarita. He looked at me, no way. Santa Clarita? I thought, you don't know Santa Clarita. No one knows Santa Clarita. He goes, that's Santa Clarita? And he's pointing to the CNN screen where it says, this just in, man lives in tree for 40 days to prevent it from getting cut down. Santa Clarita. He says, you live there? And I said, no comment. I said, I'm really eager to go back home, I guess. Everyone hugs the trees because we believe that we are waiting on creation. But here's what you learn in Genesis 2. 
This is the beauty of creation when it was originally formed. This is the harmony that it has. This is the perfection and the goodness that God instituted on it. Creation waits on man. Man wasn't a tree hugger. Creation was a man hugger. Everything is waiting. Things didn't sprout. God created things in seed form sometimes, just waiting on man to come because creation was excited about man. This was not a tyrannical dominion. And this was not an injoyous submission. It was beautiful. Everything was harmonious. And it wasn't just harmonious between man and creation. When God creates man, what you see is that there's a wondrous relationship between God and man. Notice verse 7, Yahweh God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. This is the language of art. That's what the language is. It's the language of craftsmanship. It's the language of a potter carefully crafting out of a clay. Man is God's masterpiece. And if you say, well, is that a big deal? Yeah. In the ancient Near East, man was an afterthought. For example, remember me talking about that battle between uh, the husband and the wife, and he kind of split open his wife, goddess, and put her two body parts in the sky and the earth? Well, the gods fought all the time. And one time, one god stabbed the other god, and his blood spilled out, hit the dust, and people popped out. That's how the ancient Near East viewed people. They were an accident. They were a cosmic mistake. Do you know why people have dignity? You don't have dignity if you come from a monkey. You don't have dignity if you're just a cosmic mistake or an afterthought. But you have dignity if the God of the universe, though transcendent as he be, forms you as his masterpiece to love you then you have dignity. You see, God had a wondrous relationship with man. He's always cared about his people, always, from the very moment he made them. So you have harmony between man and creation. You have harmony between God and man. And you have harmony between man and woman. God raises up man, gives him a command in the garden. We understand this more on this later. And then what does he do? He, he, he put, puts these animals before Adam. And Adam has to name them. And there's an object lesson in this. It's not just to assert dominion, even though that is the case. But Adam should start to notice a pattern. Hello, Mr. Lamb. Hello, Mrs. Lamb. Hello, Mr. Goat. Hello, Mrs. Goat. Hello, Mr. Giraffe. Hello, Mrs. Giraffe. Mr. Mrs. Mr. Mrs. Mr. Mrs. Mr. And also, at the same time, he's learning. I'm not a lamb. I'm not a sheep. I'm not a giraffe. I'm not a lion. And once he learns, there's a Mr. and Mrs. And I haven't found Mrs. Then God says, you've been promoted. Have surgery. And knocks him out. And it's a divine operation to take something from his side. Take something that is a part of him and to make from himself, of himself, one who is truly a suitable helpmate, one who is like him. And when Adam sees this woman, he has such compelling love that he utters a poem that from that point forward, every Christmas, every card, Valentine's Day card, whatever, has tried to imitate and can never successfully do so. 
He, at that moment, think about this, Adam invented poetry because of his great love for his wife. It's love at first sight in the most profound way. And the language is this one, this is the one. The Hebrew says it over and over, this one, this one, bone of my bone, this one, flesh of my flesh, this one will be called woman. He knows she is not just one, but this one, the only one. So what you have here, perfect harmony, man and creation, perfect harmony, man and God, perfect harmony, man and woman, and even the very definition of marriage that ensues, God has made something, not just to exude his absolute sovereign, overwhelming power, but his overwhelming goodness. All of that is there. He's great and he's good. And at the same time, in doing all of this, he has set up so many definitions. Let me just give you some. Light versus dark. Water versus land. Day versus night. Living versus non-living. You say, do we really need to distinguish that? Yeah. Think about vegetarians for a second. The vegetarians who say to you, I, I, I'm a vegetarian because I don't want to eat anything alive. Well, then you have to retort back. You do know that according to biology, plants have cells. They're alive. So by your scientific definition, you can't eat them either. You just can't eat. What are you going to do then? But the Bible has a better answer because the Bible defines life differently. Plants are created on day three. Plants are created as part of what occupies the space, what is part of the locations. Day four through six tell you what fills those spaces as actual entities. So the Bible actually makes a distinction and vegetarians borrow on what the Bible establishes as life. You see, you always need the Bible's definition. It's not just what is living versus non-living, animals versus man. That's gonna be distinguished. Men versus women, that's defined and distinguished. And even the very nature of marriage, that's defined and distinguished, just to name a few things. And what has happened in our society is our society has attempted to redefine and to defy these definitions to their absolute chaos and irrationality from everything in athletics to the promotion of crime. This has been degrading to our society. Why? Because you cannot defy definitions by definition. Think about what a definition is. It is the bedrock truth. It is the way something is. You cannot get underneath it. And if you defy it, it will hurt you. Kid jumping on the bed. And he has a, you know, a towel on, pretends he's Superman. And you're trying to convince the kid, don't jump, don't jump. And he says, why not? And you say, well, because if you jump, your, your, your towel doesn't have enough air resistance to you know, counteract the forces that are in physics to allow you to have a safe landing. And, and because you will fall, you will hurt yourself. So therefore, don't jump. He says, why? Well, 
Well, because, you know, towels are made of certain kinds of cotton. We don't, we're not that rich. We can't, like, provide you the most threaded towel on the planet to prevent that kind of and sustain that kind of parachutal force and everything. And then it goes, why? And you say, well, ultimately, because there's gravity. And it's a force that pulls you. And on this planet, it's going to pull you down. Why? Well, that's because God made it that way. Why? For his glory. Why? For his glory. Why? For his glory. It's a definition. You can't. You can't get any deeper than that. You can't dig any further than that. And definitions cannot be defied, right? No parent really has joy in watching this, but maybe they do. And when they watch their child jump and say, I'm Superman, and then the child meets gravity, I told you so. Because you can never fight reality and win. And what has God created? Reality. Do you want to know why sin has consequences? Do you want to know why disobedience causes harm? Do you want to know why when you don't do it God's way, that there are these disastrous effects upon your life and all of culture and the world and society? It's because there is a definition. It is the way it is. You cannot fight gravity. You cannot fight definitions. And therefore, you cannot fight what God has established in the scriptures. It is the way it is. It is the definition. That is what is going on here. And it doesn't just remind us, this has to be history. It is the fact on the ground. It isn't myth. It isn't parable. It is the definition. But in doing so, what it absolutely establishes for us is this central truth. That is the nature of our God. That is the nature of his sovereignty. He is not a God who is sovereign in the hypothetical or the sovereign in the theoretical or the sovereign in the abstract or the sovereign detached from this world. When he is sovereign and he makes a sovereign decree, it is binding It is definitional. It is the way it is. It is a historical reality. It is the absolute fact. And you can defy it. But when you do, you will be clobbered because you cannot win against what is factually true. That is the nature of the sovereignty of our God. That's what we have to understand. He has created. He has the definition. And here's what we must learn. Definitions are not to be defied. They are to be obeyed. And that is the nature of our sovereign God. He is the one who creates. But he's not just the one who creates. He's the one who commissions. He's the one who commissions. What we have in Genesis 1 and 2, as we know, is that our God is great and he is good and he is wonderful and he is kind and he is compassionate and he loves man, though no one understands why he does. But all of that will be challenged. All of that will be challenged in Genesis 3. And this is where God commissions. What you have in Genesis 3 is a diabolical plot. You have a creature possessed by Satan, verse 1, who is shrewd, more shrewd, more cunning than all the other living creatures of the field. And what you have now is a creature set out to defy the very order that God has established, the very sovereign organization and structure that God has ordained. And so Satan will use a creature to subvert woman, to subvert man, to subvert God. This is a diabolical coup. 
And this coup subversively goes against the word of God. The serpent says, has God really said? Has God really said? And we know that the woman, she adds and subtracts from God's word. She subtracts. God says, you may freely eat of any tree of the garden. The woman just says, you may eat. And she adds to scripture. She says, well, God said, it's not just that you, can, you can't eat, you can't touch. That's not true. God just said, don't eat, which means you can do a lot of things with that fruit. You could play catch with it. That's fine. You could kick it around like a soccer ball. That's fine. You can make a pie as long as you don't eat it. And my favorite, you could take that fruit, touch it in your hand, shove it in the serpent's mouth and say, silence. You could do that as well. Very fine. I like that usage. All of that is okay. But she subverted the word of God. And the whole time, and you can't see this as easily in English, but in Hebrew, it's clear. The serpent keeps saying, not just you, but to use the Texas thing, all y'all, y'all. And you just keep wondering, did God tell y'all to do this? Did God say y'all should do this, y'all? Why does the serpent keep saying you all? Because the woman is not by herself this whole time. The serpent is talking not only to the woman, she's talking with Adam. She's using, the serpent that is, is using the woman against the man. And so there's this diabolical plot, a coup of creation, subverting the word of God, pitting woman against man. And on top of that, there's great deception involved too. You know, the serpent says, well, when you eat of this fruit, God knows that your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And you say, that's not true. Hold on a second. Notice verse seven of chapter three. It says, they ate and what happened? Their eyes were open and they saw that they were naked. They actually, what Satan said was true. It just was deceptive because think of it this way, two ways to think about it. Fundamentally, man was made not just like God, man was made in his what? Image. Now, which is more intimate to be just like God or to be in the spitting image of God? Image. And so what did Satan do? He said, well, you'll just be like God. And he made it sound like a good thing. He made a demotion sound like a promotion. And that gets into the analogy. It's kind of like a used car salesman comes up to you and says, I have this vehicle that you're looking at has the best anti-theft device ever. Say, what's that? It's a system we invented called no engine. You say, what kind of system is that? Well, it means that this car has no engine. It's not going anywhere. No one's gonna take it. It's the perfect security for this car. It's never gonna move out of your garage ever. And you say, wow, sign me up. It's a promotion. It's a demotion that looks like a promotion. That's what's going on here. There is absolute deception. And so you know why the woman later says, the serpent deceived me. There is a diabolical plot here. And the diabolical plot leads to absolute disobedience. Eve was deceived. She ate of the fruit and notice the language. She gave it to her husband, Adam. And the text says it this way, verse six, who was with her? 
If you didn't catch it earlier, you should have caught it now. And he ate and everything was a disaster from there. And so you have a diabolical plot. You have Adam's disobedience, which leads to the fall. He is the head of creation. And so creation falls with him in disaster and everything is tarnished. The image of God tarnished. The fear emerges relationships shattered, wrath of God ensues. People start blaming each other. There's disunity, there's pain, there's struggle, there's labor, there's scarcity, there's death. All in one moment, everything just goes wrong. And here's something important, definitions again. Here's where you have to understand, sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. People say, oh, well, I've got body issues. Well, that's because of sin, because now you're only like God. The image of God has been tarnished. People say, well, I have marriage issues. Well, what do you think started happening in Genesis chapter three? People say, oh, there's issues with justice. Yeah, that that happened in Genesis three. People say there are medical issues. Yeah, how about death, which is the ultimate cause of every medical issue happens in Genesis 3. People say, what about economic issues? When you have thorns and thistles choking out crops, that causes scarcity, and scarcity is at the root of every economic issue. Everything comes back to Genesis chapter 3, and every problem is related to sin. We need to have that in definition. Sometimes people say, well, it's not sin, it's just you know they had a bad upbringing, or oh, they're diseased in this way, or no, 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 no. Everything goes back to sin. That's definitional. That is part of this story. And in this darkest hour, here's what's so amazing. There's the dawn of redemption, the dawn of redemption. In the midst of the worst moment of history, Genesis 3.15 comes, and here's what God says. God says this, there will be a seed who will crush the serpent's head. Satan will not win immediately. He thought he could take over the woman. Nope, there will be enmity between you and the woman. He thought he could win historically. Nope, her seed will be against your seed. He thought he might win ultimately. No, he won't. Why? Because there will be one, one called he, singular because he's the Messiah, parallel to all because he is their representative. And even more, he's a he because he is Adam, the final Adam, This is why later throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Jesus is called the son of Adam, the son of man. And we look forward to the last Adam because it was anticipated from the beginning. And here is God's point. You, Satan, tried to use man to overthrow me. I will use the God man to destroy you. You just signed your death warrant. You never can win. You never can win. And so there will be a dawn of redemption. And God, everything that God was about was to cause that redemption to take place. And he even illustrates that redemption. He even illustrates it. What he does at the end of Genesis chapter three is he, he kills an animal to give Adam and his wife clothing that they could never have. To save your life, he has to take a life. There must be substitution. And notice this, and I love it. It says this in Hebrew so clearly, he caused them to be clothed. He caused them to be clothed. Why? You can never clothe yourself. You can never put on this righteousness of your own. You can never do anything. God must do it for you. And did Adam believe? Did Adam understand these things? This is what he does. He says, he calls, verse 20, the name of his wife, Eve. 
because she's the mother of all the living, even though there are no children yet. That doesn't happen until the next chapter. Why? Because Adam knows God's promise of Genesis 3.15 will come true. He believes. He believes. That's faith. So there's faith in a sacrifice that clothes us in righteousness, in status, not our own, and covers our shame and removes it. There's faith required for that. And God casts them out of the garden. You say, why does he do that? So that they don't eat of the tree of life and live forever in a reprobated state. You know what life forever as a condemned sinner, one under the wrath of God is? It's hell. And so what God did here is he said, I will prevent you. I will prevent some from being in hell. Get out of the garden so that his plan will continue. From the very beginning, God had a plan. It was about redemption. It was his son. It was to redeem all things and make things right. And here is an important reminder. There are days where we might have a bad day. Remember this, the first of all bad days, in the darkest of moment, here was the anthem, Yahweh is our salvation. And if it was true on the first of all bad days, then it is true in every bad day. In every moment, God has a plan and his plan of redemption goes forward. Well, we've talked about creation, we've talked about commission, and now we talk about constraint. Chapters four through 11, which is actually the majority of what I'm supposed to talk about tonight, which occupies the minority of the time, but we'll get through because it's easy at this point to understand what God does. He's going to push his plan forward. This plan of Genesis 3.15, this plan of the seed will be pushed forward. And you say, how does he do that? He'll change the whole world to make it happen. In Genesis 4 and 5 and 6, God preserves this line of the seed against satanic plots. Satanic plots to murder the line. That's what Satan does to through Cain and Abel, killing Abel, thinking that he had disabled the plan of God. And God just says rhetorically to Satan, you do know that Adam and his wife can have more than two kids, right? And that I got another guy named Seth, whose name means appointed one, because he's the appointed one. You killed the decoy. You didn't ever win. That's God's victory on display. He preserves against satanic plots to murder. He preserves against satanic plots to corrupt. Genesis 6, demons attempt in a once and a unique time of history to possess individuals and create a corrupted line of man, but that doesn't work either. Everything they tried to produce, it didn't work. All that they aspired to do didn't work. And God preserved his line and moved forward. But in the midst of such corruption, God had to judge the world and renew the world so that his plan would continue. And that's why the flood occurs. It is both an act of judgment and an act of cleansing. It's like giving a kid a bath. It's both judgment and cleansing. And so God is going to give the world a bath to renew it. That's why Noah's name is Noah. The word Noah means rest. And through Noah, there will be a form, a semblance of rest in this world, even through judgment. And we see that. There's a massive judgment that takes place. The whole earth breaks forth from the depths and from the sky. It's three-dimensional pounding of water for 40 days and 40 nights. 
But here's what's amazing. In it all, Genesis chapter eight, verse one, he preserves Noah. He preserves Noah. God remembered Noah. And here's what God starts to do. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. It says that there was a wind blowing across the earth. Where have you heard of a wind or spirit hovering over something? Genesis chapter one. Where have you heard this phrase before? Genesis 8, 5, 7, 14, the dry land appeared. Is that not found also in Genesis chapter one? Where have you heard the phrase seven days? Noah waits for seven days. Where have you heard the language of seven days before? Genesis chapter one. Where have you heard the language of go out, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? Genesis chapter one, but also found in Genesis chapter eight. What is God doing? He is restoring the world restoring the world so his plan can continue, restraining, constraining evil, even as he preserves the line of the seed through cataclysmic situations. Now, in the midst of all this, we know that Noah sent out a dove to see if the land had become fruitful and that there was dry land out there. But why does he send out a raven? Have you ever wondered that? Why does he send out a raven? Because ravens eat dead things. They're carrion birds, yes? And so what was Noah trying to figure out? He was trying to figure out what it was gonna look like out there when he got off the ark. And here's where sometimes as believers, we, we, we have this misconception. You know, everyone in Sunday school teaches Noah's ark and what they draw as he gets off the ark, there's a sun in the sky and it's smiling and there's a beautiful rainbow emanating out and the grass is green and Noah and his kids and all the animals, they have big smiles as they get off the ark. That's not true at all. Sure, maybe the sun is shining. Sure, there could be green grass, but there's death everywhere. That's why a raven doesn't come back to the ark. It has plenty of food. And there's death everywhere. And I don't think in light of all of these skeletal remains and all of the carcasses that were strewn all over the place that Noah and his wife and kids are all just big grins, photographic smiles as they get off the ark. But here's what they do do. They get off the ark and they sacrifice to God. Why? Because now they know grace. They know grace. And the Noahic covenant is established where God restrains all things. There's regularity of seasons. There's the fear of man and animals and the ability for man to eat of animals, not raw, not living animals, but cooked animals. That's true. God provides all of these things to restrain the effects of everything that has happened so that his plan will continue. Let me put it this way. What does God do so that his plan will advance forward? He redoes the entire world. That's how far he will go so that his plan will advance forward. And here's another thing to think about. From this point forward, all we know is grace. You are never going to live what you deserve in this life. You are never going to have what should have been. God redid the world, restrained the fall and its curse on the land so that his plan would continue. And all we know is grace. Never neglect the reality of common grace. As believers, 
our whole life is one experience of grace. If you say, how was your day? Oh, it was just a normal day. That's amazing. You've just experienced the Noahic covenant. You've just experienced the faithfulness of God enforcing a covenant that is thousands of years old every single second of every single day. You may have normal days, but you always have grace-filled ones then too. That's what we have to understand. And God not only restrained and preserved the line against satanic plots, preserved a line by constraining creation, he also constrained man. Because the flood didn't change the heart of man. That's what God says at the end of chapter eight into chapter nine. The heart of man is continuously on evil all the time. That's the nature of depravity. And so man, given the opportunity by common language, will always unite. And they do so at the Tower of Babel. We know this, Genesis chapter 11, which anticipates a future time. Because the word Babel in Hebrew is the same word as Babylon. There will be a future time, we know, when man will unite, overcoming their differences, but not for good, but for tremendous wickedness. We have a taste of that in Genesis 11. But to forestall that eventuality and to allow redemption to continue, God splits man, dividing language and dividing nation so that nation will check nation. There will be checks and balances so that depravity is restrained and redemption will go forward. And with that, and with that, as all these nations emerge so that God's plan will go forward, there is a need for nations to be told the gospel, for nations to know about the plan of Genesis 3.15. And so what happens? You need to raise up one nation to witness to the rest of the nations. And what nation will that be? The nation of Israel. And that moves us into Genesis chapter 12, which is a story for a different time. God has done first things first. He has set up the story. He has set up the foundational definitions and he has set up himself. He is not an elevated man. He is not an ancient Near Eastern deity. He is Yahweh God, the one elevated over all, the one who is undefeatable, the one whose plan goes forward, the one whose grace sustains every single moment of every single day, the one who loves and the one who is sovereign and holy. And that God who is so mighty and drives all things forward, that is the God we know and we serve. And it is absolutely worth it to serve him. And that God has established that in his plan, there is one focal point and that is his son. And he has even even done all these things so that at the juncture that we're in, there will be a nation to declare him, even as we are to do. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Your plan is unstoppable. It is glorious. And we marvel at you and all that you have done and how so clearly from the beginning, there was no ambiguity about your creation And there is no ambiguity about the Savior either. May our hearts always be drawn to him and understand that you have always desired to put your son on display. And may it be true that we give full glory to him. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.